Now, last week, we saw Abraham's descendants, and Abraham passed off the stage. He passes away, and remember, the inheritance, the, the promise, extends not to Ishmael, not to any of Abraham's other sons, but specifically to Isaac. So remember, what we're doing in Genesis is Genesis is tracing a lineage from Abraham to Isaac, and now we're going to trace that lineage to Isaac's chosen son. And so if you'll read with me, we're going to start in Genesis 25, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Chapter 25, starting at verse 24. Now when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brothers came out with his hand holding his Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when, they, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what good is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot. A wise man is going to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. A foolish man, however, is a person who lives for what he cannot keep. His desires and affections are geared towards the very things that they cannot keep. And in the process, when it comes to the end, that man loses everything, even the things his very heart was geared towards in the first place. I think, I think the, the pharaohs' tombs of Egypt are so ironic because we discover these great tombs with riches in them beyond their wild, um, gold and silver and figurines and the Egyptians built their life around amassing wealth, these Egyptians, and thought they could carry them into the next life. But really all that happened was that their gods and their gold died with them. And they didn't do anything for them. And, and the difference is that our God died for us so that we might live with him. 
but their gods died with them. Now, this passage is about two imperfect men. So just because we're, chasing, we're tracing a chosen line, the Bible is very real. It's not like ancient Greek hero stories where the hero is, is always the, the one. There's only one that can be perfect, and that's God himself. Now, if God comes in flesh, he can also be perfect as a human. But this passage is about two imperfect men. Esau is a man who gives up the inheritance of God for a bowl of stew. Jacob is a man who is conniving, who is a cheater. But for all of his imperfections, the one thing you can say about Jacob, and this will become clear as the story progresses in, G in um, Genesis, the one thing you can say about Jacob is that he strives for a blessing. That's the one thing in him, is he strives for blessing. This passage shows us the difference between what is immediate and what is abiding. It shows the difference between what is eternal and unseen, between what is passing away, though seen at the present moment. Let's talk about the contrast of Esau and Jacob at the birth first, and then the contrast between Jacob and Esau at the scene where Esau forfeits his birthright. First, the birth. Now this birth narrative, it actually foreshadows something. It foreshadows conflict between Jacob and Esau. In verse 24 through 26, the first difference that foreshadows a conflict between the two is that um, they were born differently. 24 says, when Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And Esau is very close to the Hebrew word for red. So, they, so Esau is associated with redness throughout this passage, which is interesting. So Esau comes out, hair, he already comes out with hair on his chest. He's manly, he's hairy, he's vigorous. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob comes out differently. And verse 26, afterward his brother comes out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means something like he cheats or he grabs by the heel. It has a, it has, it means he, he wants something, but it has a negative connotation at the same time, which really depicts Jacob's character. And so, interestingly, Esau is named by what he is. Jacob is named by what he does. I find that interesting. Second, in verse 27, we see that they have not only they're, they're not only born differently, but they have different dispositions. In verse 27, when the boy grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man. Dwelling in tents. 
So here it is. Esau again is vigorous and manly. He's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He has his rifles loaded, his his guns ready. He's 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 manly. And Jacob's quiet, retiring, likes to cook. <laughs> you know, he gets into his cookbooks, he he likes to dwell in tents, and he, he doesn't bother himself with perhaps going out and the blood and, and these things are not becoming to him. So Jacob is quiet. He's a homebody. He's not much of a woodsman. He cooks. Now, if anyone is going to receive the inheritance in this time, it's Esau. He is the firstborn first of all. So the firstborn always gets the inheritance in this culture. Now, last week we saw that that doesn't, in fact, is the opposite of what happens throughout the scriptures. But, you know, he's the firstborn, he would get the inheritance. And um, not only is he the firstborn, he's manly. So he's the one who, who could take charge of the, of the tribe of Abraham. He's got hair on his chest, he's vigorous, he's a hunter who can cook his game, and he's preferred by his father. Right? And so his father, it says in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So there's a different, they're, they're playing favorites here. And honestly, this doesn't cast in Isaac in a very substantive light. I love this guy because he cooks well. All right? This, my son cooks well. Now, we all love Ray Alvarenga because he cooks well. But, but for Isaac, um, seems like a seems like a cheap way to choose who's going to be your favorite. But he's, but anyhow, he saw his manly, the firstborn hunter, and he cooks. Now, as far as a biblical application, I think there are divergent qualities here between Jacob and Esau. You can see that. And those divergent qualities prefigure the conflict between the people that would arise from them. That conflict in the womb is in verse 23. Remember, God gives the oracle and says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So there's a conflict even in the womb. That conflict is prefigured in their different characteristics at their birth, and that conflict would extend far beyond the book of Genesis. Jacob and Esau are the forefathers of two nations, after all. The nations are Israel and Edom. And they become bitter rivals throughout the entire Old Testament. Um, let's just look at one passage here as an illustration of the, um, the rivalry. Uh, Numbers 20, verse 14. If you have your Bibles... Turn to Numbers 20, verse 14. Numbers 20, verse 14, you see this conflict being carried on even to the Exodus period. 
Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, which is Esau's family, his tribe. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our forefathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt for a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and with our forefathers. And we cried to the Lord and he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are at Kadesh in a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through a field or vineyard or drink water from your well. We will go along the king's highway, and we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, uh, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Just let me pass through on foot, nothing more. But Edom said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So you see that conflict already blossoming? In the uh, and eventually, the height of the conflict arises in um, when Edom actually sides with Babylon to defeat Israel and hold them captive and send them away. And you can read about that in passages like Psalm one thirty-seven seven, Ezekiel twenty-five twelve, and Obadiah ten. You see, the, you see where Edom sided with Babylon and decided to, uh, and, and were aggressive en enemies against Israel. So those are, that's just an illustration for how it went. Now those different characteristics of the twins, though, foreshadow that century-long conflict that we'd see throughout the Old Testament. So there's a difference. Right? And the difference there between Jacob and Esau foreshadow a conflict of nations. Thus the oracle, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from you shall be divided. Now, what about the scenario here of the birthright? This scenario where Esau sells his birthright shows you that there that difference between Jacob and Esau is deeper than what they look like at birth. It's deeper than who they would forefather even. The deeper difference is found in where their hunger lies. Esau is a man who is hungry in his flesh. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Um, Edom sounds like the word for red in Hebrew. And so Esau has red skin. 
He wants red stew, and he fathers a nation whose name sounds like red. So he's associated with redness. But the picture here of Esau, the more real picture besides the color of Esau, is a picture of a brash man. Vigorous, manly, but brash. Practically, practical-minded, pragmatic, you know, big chest, doesn't care about these spiritual things which you can't see, taste, or touch. At this point, at least, in his life, Esau does not bother himself with some so-called blessing from God that his grandfather Abraham had and would be passed down to him. These things do not concern him at all. His concerns are practical. Esau is a man who cares about what he will eat, what he will drink, and what he will wear. Jacob is a man, for all of his imperfections, he is a man who is hungry, not in his flesh, but in his spirit throughout Genesis. 31, he connives, and he, he uses Esau's hunger to exploit him. And he says, sell me your birthright now. That's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. And Esau brashly exaggerates, says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore and sold him his birthright. So Jacob is quick in calculating. And he's definite. He knows exactly what he wants. And he uses Esau's hunger to get it. He wants the blessing. So, you have two imperfect men. Both of them are not models of virtue by any means. But they are both hungry. And the main difference between both of them is what they're hungry for. Um, again, I want to stress, Jacob is not a model of virtue, but he is someone who strives for blessing throughout Genesis. At his birth, he grabs the heel. Here, he connives because he wants the birthright, the blessing that came from Abraham to Isaac, and he wants that. Later, he's going to wrestle with an angel and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he would be renamed Israel, which means one who strives with God. He's a seeker, but Esau, and that, that's important, seekers, When we talk to people, I was just talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and, um, you know, they gave me their secular view on the world and how, you know, all religions are kind of the same, and, you know, the basic spiel that uh, it's just an amalgamate of, of different ideas that they combine and make to one, so as not to offend anyone. But, um, but that's what I said to him. I said, well, do you seek the truth? Are you looking for truth? Personally, I think 
if somebody is a seeker, what they're seeking after is truth. And if they're seeking after truth, they're going to wind up, if they follow it all the way, at Christ. Right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. So it's good for someone to be a seeker. The problem is when someone's not seeking at all. Seekers need something. They want something. And whether that, that comes in the form of an emptiness. As Augustine said, and I, I think I said last week, their hearts will be restless until they find rest in him, in Christ. So it's seekers, seeker is a good thing to be. Because one who seeks, a true seeker, seeks after truth. If you seek after truth and find it, you'll wind up at Christ. Now, Esau, on the other hand, is um, he's not a man who seeks. He is, a, he is an example of somebody whose God is their belly, as Paul says. He is governed by the demands of the flesh, um, and he chooses what is immediate and present over what is abiding and lasting. And the final word on Esau is verse 34. So after he eats, here's the narrative conclusion about Esau. That last sentence. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That's the point of the story. It's driving towards what Esau was willing to forfeit for a bowl of stew. This, as I see it, is a prototype of spiritual folly. Sin, which you could just rename spiritual foolishness, usually involves a short-term gain, or else people wouldn't do it. It usually involves a short-term gain at the expense of a long-term loss. And sin, or spiritual folly, is usually compelled by the flesh, like Esau. So it's, it's spiritual folly, immediate return, long-term loss, compelled by the flesh. So if, as an example, you know, sugar... I just found that sugar is really bad for you this past week or two. Like, I, I know I'm late to the game, but I watch a few TED Talks, and I'm convinced now. Um, it's really bad to eat sugar. My goodness. And, it, and, and so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to not eat any sugar anymore. Like, I'm not, usually I would have a delightful treat after lunch or dinner. Uh, or lunch and dinner. <laughs> but, you know, surprise why I would crash an hour later and get tired and, and feel just down. Like, I just needed a nap before I go to bed kind of thing. Uh, it was just, sugar brings me down. And after learning about how sugar works in your body, um, it's just, it's incredible how bad it is for you. But it has, so the point is this, it has a short-term gain. It tastes good. And it even lifts you up 
for the first 15 minutes. It gives you that jolt, right? But it has a long-term effect on you because of the rest of the day, an hour later, it's like you can't get back the day after eating sugar. You're going to be absolutely downcast if you eat enough and just tired and you just feel like, what is life anymore after eating sugar? It's really, it gives you a bad attitude too. So, don't eat sugar. Um, now, sin, spiritual folly, in the same way, has a short-term gain and a long-term loss. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but somebody does. There are fleeting pleasures of sin. Maybe people you would attach yourself to for the short-term gain. But it's going to be a long-term loss. Pleasures. You know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I've seen pictures of, I think, I think heroin addicts uh, or meth addicts. It's like after five years of meth, it looks like they've been taken over by a demon. It, it looks like they are a messenger of the dead. And maybe, and maybe they have been taken over by a, a spiritual power. Because their body reflects that. But it's for that hit. Right? That hit gives them the short-term gain. But the long-term loss takes away the very life from a person. Now that's easy. Drugs are easy, obviously, to, to pick on. But, but there's always... Life is a choice. And there are micro-choices in all your life that are always going to have either a long-term gain or a short-term gain. Now Esau is somebody who chose the short-term gain and had the long-term loss. Now the book of Hebrews picks up on this very story in Hebrews 12 verses 14 through 17. Let me frame this really quick. So the Christian, big picture, his or her life is going to be geared towards the long-term gain. They're going to strive, much like Jacob, towards the long-term gain in their life. Those who will be without God forever will capitulate to a long-term loss because of a short-term gain. So, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes you trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral. Why he talks about sexual immorality specifically there? Because it's done with body and soul. It's very all-encompassing. It's, it's very, it grips a person. It's very hard to come out of. 
but every, everything is possible. But see to it that none are sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Chapter 27 I believe. Esau has come to a point in his life where he does want the birthright, but loses it, wants to kill his brother, is inflamed with rage. But he chose to sell his, sell his birthright. So, spiritual folly involves short-term gain and long-term loss. But there is such a thing as spiritual wisdom. And even if somebody is entrenched in spiritual folly... If they begin by Christ's power to move towards a spiritually wise life, they will be willing to give up lesser things for ultimate things. That is what spiritual wisdom is. It's letting go of lesser things for the sake of ultimate things, and that choice is compelled by God's promises. Whereas spiritual foolishness is compelled by the flesh. Jesus himself teaches us this very thing. Let's turn to Matthew 6, verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus teaches us about letting go of temporal things for the sake of eternal things. He says, lay up for your, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And I think of those pharaohs because that's exactly what has happened. But lay up for your tre yourselves treasures in heaven where their moth, uh, where their nor moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And get this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means your very self will be where your treasure is. So what, what will God's people attach their hearts to? Where will them, their very selves be? They will be attached to things that, are, that last eternally. And that's why they'll go with it. In verse 31, it says, Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? Much like Esau. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So what's our preoccupation? It's not the practical things in life for lack of a better word. It's not eating, drinking, wearing. And notice that every commercial is about those kinds of things. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Jesus tells us to have confidence in God. 
not worrying about the everyday things of life or being preoccupied with them, but to be preoccupied with eternal things. That's what seeking first the kingdom is, rather than temporary things. The kingdom of God, in a sentence, is where God's will is done. It's the range of God's will. It's his rule and reign in a certain location. Whether that's a human heart or the world. So it's wherever God is functionally king, there is the kingdom of God. Um, and he says, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, this is in a context where righteousness is not referred to as imputed righteousness. Please understand. He's not saying, seek to be justified. He's talking about Christ-likeness. And you know that because just a chapter earlier, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, um, I forget what he said there, but he says, your, right, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, what does that mean? Well, note, the Pharisees weren't righteous. And all their righteousness was external, not internal. So the word exceed there has the basic idea of go beyond. Your righteousness must go beyond that of the Pharisees and penetrate into the internal man. That's the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It must go beyond the external and penetrate towards the internal. That's why Jesus talks about the Pharisees as people who are whitewashed tombs inside. They're full of dead men's bones. The problem was their righteousness was all external. Jesus requires an internal righteousness. Now... You can't do that without imputed righteousness, without the Holy Spirit in you. But for too long, people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said that's something you can't do. No, it's something you can do and you're required to do. Right? Don't use grace as an excuse to not follow Jesus. And you can, by God's power, begin to live the kind of life progressively but surely where the imputed righteousness of God in union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through your intentional cooperation with that salvation your heart can be forged and formed so that Christ has more of you so that it truly is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So that's the kind of life that we must progress towards. Again, um, not to put you on the spot, but Mark said something so good in Bible study. He talked about outfitting ourselves for heaven. That's what the Christian life is about, preparing ourselves towards glory. And so... Um, that's what the Christian life is, is about the internal righteousness now um, 
suffering reproach in this life also is um, is shaping. I want to. I just want to put that out there for a minute because it's through suffering that you can choose ultimate things too. You can choose to not be absolutely demoralized. That's another. That's another form of selling your birthright. It's to allow yourself to become absolutely demoralized, taken over, and then hopeless by the situation. By faith, Hebrews says, when he was born, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. By faith, when he was grown up, Moses refused to call to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. There's somebody who strives for eternity. He is looking for the reward. Now, Culture today, society today, is going to have you attempt to train your heart to not look for the reward, but to look at the phone, which is always there, it seems. And I'm trying to whittle myself off of my phone the past couple of days in a reasonable way. But it's, it's a culture of instant gratification. Um, we were talking earlier. It's like it, the, the, whole, the whole phone thing, the social media thing, is to it trains your heart to lust for just immediate gratification. Instant gratification. So that's what your heart desires. That's what it longs for. And it becomes very Esau-like in that sense. Which is why fasting is a very good discipline. Fasting trains the self away from instant gratification. It trains the self to long for something it does not have. So, uh, also too, those parents, what are you going to teach your children? Train them to long for eternal things. And don't just teach them practical things. Teach them practical things. People need, not, need to know how to change tires and cook and clean the house and dress and put on a tie. Basic things in life. But ultimately, teach them towards ultimate things. Eternal things. Um, I was working with a man. Uh, we were doing construction a few years ago. And he just said something so profound to me. Because he was a master builder person, and he just knew how to do everything. Um, and he taught all his kids, and all his children were like independent contractor, business owners. And he just said, he said to me, you know, if you don't teach your kids what you know while you have them, then you've lost your chance to influence them. I think that was so, so good. I think it was that week that I started the catechism with Wesley and Elise. So... We're talking about choosing what is, choosing towards what is temporal or eternal instead of choosing towards what is temporal. Esau 
is an imperfect man and his choice stands for us as somebody who has forfeited a great inheritance for something that is passing away and temporary. Jacob, for all his imperfections, stands as somebody who strives. He wants, for, he wants what God has. Right here he doesn't know it yet perfectly, but he wants the blessing. He is a seeker. Last thing I'm going to say in closing then is, and I have to bring this up, even though I've said it many times before, the wise man is the one who understands the value of God's kingdom and gives everything, sacrifices everything to chase that kingdom, that righteousness in his life, the life of his family, the life of those around him. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, I could find it. Ah, Matthew 13. What is the kingdom heaven like? The one who understands the kingdom of heaven. What, what is he like? Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. That's the kingdom of heaven kind of wisdom. Now why does the man sell everything he has to buy the better thing? He sells everything he has so he could own the field and the treasure in it. So that shows us, please understand this about the Christian life, that God works, I think Thomas Chalmers said this, God works not by taking things away, but by giving us something greater in ultimate, and points towards that and says, go for that one. Go for that thing. That's why the very beginning, when God delivers his people, he says in Deuteronomy, behold, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life in that eternally. So, that's what, uh, that's what the Christian life is about. Is it, about. it is about choosing life and ultimate things instead of temporal things and things that are passing away. Do not be like Esau who sold his birthright. And I'm not necessarily being, say, saying be like Jacob. Be like somebody who strives for the holiness and the kingdom that God has for you. And he will see to it that you acquire those things. Let's close in a word of prayer.